This is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Follow the outrage on Twitter at CFRA Ottawa. Friday. Happy Friday to all of you. I hope that wherever you are, you are having a good day. Because to tell you what, I'm I'm having a good day. It's one of those where you've got to you got to cinch the belt another notch. You know? Not out the way, in the way. So that's a good day. Um I wish I could say that Justin Tr- actually who are we kidding? I don't want Justin Trudeau to have a good day, and he's not. Not just because of All the different problems that his government is facing over the small business tax changes. Not because he's had a week of trying to defend taxing someone working at The Gap and their 20% discount or the waitress with the chicken, the infamous chicken salad at the end of her shift. It's not that Justin Trudeau's having a bad day because Bill Morneau forgot to, you know, Tell the ethics commissioner that his villa in France was owned by a private company uh, registered to him and his wife. It's not that Justin Trudeau's having a bad day because we found out it cost more than $200,000 to design the cover of the last budget. No, Justin Trudeau is having a bad day because this guy is, he's finally tied in the polls with the conservatives. Alleluia. Amen. Angus Reid poll. From sunny ways to midterm blues, two years after Trudeau majority, liberals and CPC in dead heat. Now, let me give you just some of the highlights from this. Nationally, the two parties are tied at 35% apiece. The NDP has 18%. The Bloc has 4% nationally, 16% in Quebec. And the Greens, 6%. But here's the interesting part. There are only two regions in the country where Justin Trudeau and the liberals are in the lead. Quebec and Atlantic Canada. That's it. The rest of the country, things are not looking rosy for Justin Trudeau at the halfway point. And I don't know about you, but that just makes me feel good. Sing it again. Ah, I can't get enough of that. So let me give you let me give you the breakdown here. Thirty five percent for the conservatives and the liberals nationally. In Atlantic Canada, twenty nine percent say if an election were held today, they would vote for the conservatives. Forty six percent in Atlantic Canada have Stockholm syndrome and say they would vote for the liberals. In Quebec, 20% would vote for the Conservatives, 40% for the Liberals, 18% for the New Democrats, 16% for the Bloc, 4% for the Greens. In Ontario, it's tied 37 apiece for the Liberals and the Conservatives, 19% for the NDP. Here's where it gets bad. I'm just going to give you the Liberal numbers in Western Canada. They've got 24% support in Manitoba. 21% support in Saskatchewan, 21% support in Alberta, and 29% in British Columbia. With those numbers, with the tie in Ontario and the anemic numbers in Western Canada, all the way from the Manitoba-Ontario border until the Pacific Ocean, I predict that if an election were held today, not only would it be a conservative government, even with these numbers, Potential for a conservative majority. And here's why. Let me explain why to you on this. Because with the split in Ontario, you could see them gaining, the conservatives gaining all kinds of seats that they lost in the last election. Seats here in Ottawa. We're down to one conservative MP in Ottawa. We used to have most of the MPs in the Ottawa region were conservative. So they would, uh, the conservatives would take back maybe not all, but an awful lot of the suburban seats in Ottawa. They would take back the 905 in the Toronto area. They would take back the London, Ontario area. Then you get into Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta. 55% support for the Conservatives in Manitoba. 50% in Saskatchewan. 61% in Alberta. 33% in British Columbia. 
Justin Trudeau's liberals would be essentially wiped out between the Ontario-Manitoba border and the lower mainland of B.C. Yeah, they might keep some people in and around, say, Vancouver. Because they've always kept a couple. But I would predict that even Ralph Goodale, the lone Saskatchewan liberal for the last 80 years, would get wiped out. Ralph Goodale, by the way, first elected to Parliament in 1974. I love to say this when Justin and I were learning to tie our shoes. Ralph needs to be retired. And if he does run in the next election, if this pattern holds, he won't win. Especially not when he's about to become the face of gun control that we don't need in this country in response to what happened in Vegas. Yeah, let's tighten up Canadian gun laws because they're so similar to Nevada's. Ralph Goodale's going to get wiped out. I think the the little party of MPs that the Liberals elected, including a bunch in Calgary for the first time since I was in kindergarten in Calgary, they're going to get wiped out. Outside of Winnipeg, hmm, maybe they'd elect somebody in Winnipeg. But outside of Winnipeg, they're not going to have anybody in Manitoba. This could actually see a conservative government come to fruition here. A strong, stable, national conservative government. Let me ask you this, okay? Because every time the conservatives don't do well in, say, Quebec, uh, well, they're not really a national party. I mean, uh, the conservatives, they're a regional party. Can we call them a national party? They don't dominate in Quebec. The conservatives have 12 MPs in Quebec right now. All in the Quebec City area, you heard me talking with Eric DeHame about this the other night. The Conservatives do not elect anybody in Montreal, and it'll be a long time before they do again. But they do elect MPs, and in fact, until recently, were competitive with where the Liberals were in Quebec. Yeah, the Liberals did well in this last election. The last time they did really well, I think, was 97 So there was an 18-year gap there. But every time the conservatives don't do well in a region, oh, they're they're a regional party. Based on this, the liberals are just an eastern Canadian party. They're going to dominate in Atlantic Canada. They're going to dominate in Quebec. And they'll fight for their lives in Ontario. And other than that, they don't have support Well, much better than the NDP. In fact, in Saskatchewan, they're tied with the NDP at 21%. In British Columbia, they're just ahead of the NDP. These are bad numbers for Justin Trudeau. And what's interesting, and if we have time, I'll get into this, because this poll didn't just look at the horse race numbers. They also asked for the hits, the misses, and the areas where... There's a bit of a split. The small business tax changes, it's a bit of a split. But the misses, where they've missed on electoral reform, they're offside the Canadian public when it comes to immigration and refugee settlement. They're offside of the Canadian public when it comes to deficits. And they're offside the Canadian public when it comes to Omar Khadr and his $10 million settlement. Months after... And despite the government and all of the media telling us over and over and over again that this is, you know, we just had to do it. We had to give Omar Khadr the money. This poll finds 59% disapprove, 25% approve, and 16% they don't know. So what does this poll tell us? There is hope. There is joy to be had in the land with these numbers. Celebrate today, my friends. I posted the full poll results up on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. I encourage you to share it because and to go and read the poll. It only takes a few minutes to read the full poll. Um, you know, in, in terms of whether people have a positive or negative view of the Liberal Party, how they're doing, what they think of the prime minister. Uh, you know, very few people have a very favorable rating. In fact, more people have a very unfavorable rating then have a very favorable rating of the prime minister. And if you take away young people, especially young women, his numbers change completely. 
These are good numbers. This is a day to celebrate. This is the day the Lord has made. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. It's a truncated show tonight. Uh, Coming up just after 7.30, we're going to talk to Jeffrey Johnson from the Kingston Wig Standard. Donald Trump uh, backed out of the Iran deal today. We'll talk to him about that. We'll talk about NAFTA and terrorism, where things are going just after 8 o'clock. Did you know that it's Whiskey Month? In Ontario, but it's Whiskey Week in Ottawa. The Whiskey Festival's on. Matt Jones, the brand ambassador for Jim Beam, will join me just after 8 o'clock. In between now and then, we're going to have a lot of fun. You know how to get a hold of me. Facebook.com slash Brian Lilly. Twitter.com slash Brian Lilly. Or you can email news at CFRA.com. If you're watching on Facebook Live, join us for the rest of the show. CFRA.com or the iHeartRadio app. Always free. Apple or Android. Download it today. With Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. May I have your attention, please? Brian Lilly's Five Things You Need to Know. The number one thing you need to know is this poll. And trust me when I tell you that uh, this audience, very happy with it. I tell you, my online audience, very happy with it. I posted the full link to the poll on Facebook earlier today, and more than 450 people have shared it. This is not to a news story. This is to the Angus Reid website. This is a reputable poll by the Angus Reid Institute. You hear uh, Shachi Curl, the managing editor on this program, all the time. And well, now 472 shares. Four. 172 shares. That's amazing. Go there, read the poll, find out what it's all about, okay? That is the number one story that you need to know about. Number two story you need to know about, Bill Marneau, he of the I Forgot I Owned a Villa Through a Corporation in France. I mean, a villa here, a villa there. John Brenner on Twitter cracked me up. He, he named the villa. You know, Trump's got Mar-a-Lago. Well, Bill Morneau has Mornalago. I love it. Bill Morneau forgot to register his villa in France owned through a private corporation. This is the guy who is out there attacking people with private corporations all the time. And he forgot to tell the ethics commissioner that he and his wife own this villa through a private corporation in the south of France. But don't worry, um... You know, you're a tax cheat if you own a small business, and he's just fine. On that tax cheat front, uh, Bill Morneau is promising that he will be uh, bringing about some changes. He's in Washington, D.C. today, and he said that when he meets with the Liberal Caucus on Monday, he'll let them know what the changes are. We have some important objectives. We want to make sure that the system works for everybody for the long term. So that's a discussion that we'll continue to have, and uh, Monday will be, you know, that'll be an important discussion. Monday, Liberal MPs will find out about it. I guess Monday afternoon, the rest of us will find out at some point when they start leaking. Who knows? Story number three you need to know. Joshua Boyle and his family, his wife, American wife, Caitlin Coleman, uh, they have been released. You heard about that. They're on their way back to Canada. The Boyle family, ecstatic. It was amazing. It's the first time I've talked to him in five years. So that was, it just, it sounded like Josh. (laughs) We're here as a miracle, guys. And while I, you know, blessings upon this family, blessings upon the parents, and it's just got to be wonderful for them, I can't help but think that there's something very strange going on here. Joshua Boyle refused to get on an American plane to get out of Pakistan after he was uh, released. He wanted to only go on a Canadian plane. I guess he figured he'd be arrested for being the ex-husband of Omar Khadr's sister or something. It's crazy. But also... You didn't hear a lot about Joshua Boyle and his family. And he went there on vacation. And I I, I just wonder the idea that they were actually captive. Something is not right. I don't know what, but something is not right with this story. Story number four that you need to know about, it is uh, all about Harvey Weinstein, who is, uh, it's all over the news. The, it was even brought up. In Mexico today, where Justin Trudeau was speaking to the Mexican Senate on his uh, official trip there. Everywhere we look, 
Violence against women and girls is prevalent in all facets of life, from the studios of Hollywood to the digital public squares to our own halls of parliament. Uh, Meanwhile, in New York City, there was a mass demonstration outside of the DA's office wondering why District Attorney Cyrus Vance did not prosecute uh, Weinstein over a case involving an Italian model in 2015. His answer... They didn't have enough evidence, and as much as it may hurt people to hear that, that may actually be accurate. Based on what I've heard, could you actually prosecute someone there? It would be difficult under criminal law. Employment law is different. This is criminal law. Uh, In story number five, uh, an Ontario court has given the A-OK for Sears Canada to completely liquidate. So... That means all the stores shutting down, hundreds of people like Blaze Lyle losing their job. Mr. Or Blaze Lyle worked for the retailer for 40 years until he lost his, news, or lost his job in June. For me, it's a little bit more emotional than it's, it was more of a family for me. But it's also an end of an era for Canada. That was a, Canadian, a strong Canadian retailer at one time. It was, and I still remember going to the um, Sears Christmas parties with my mother when I was a kid. Uh, I will miss the retailer, but obviously I, like most of you, had not shopped there in a very long time. When we come back, Jeffrey Johnston from the Kingston Wake Standard will join us. He's got a new piece out on terrorism. How does this relate to Trump pulling out of the Iran deal and the fact that Iran is the biggest state sponsor of terror? We'll talk about that when we come back. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. is Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. Get some FaceTime with Brian. Join the resistance at facebook.com slash 580CFRA. His latest column in the Kingston Week Standard is headlined, Terrorism Threatens Canada. Well, it continues to uh, at every turn, whether we're talking about threats from overseas or the terror attack that I can't even say it failed in Edmonton because four people ended up, five people ended up in hospital, police officer and four pedestrians, and one of them has a long road ahead of them. Jeffrey Johnston, regular guest on the program international affairs columnist with the Kingston Week Standard, writing on terrorism in Canada today. But, Jeffrey, I guess the the big focus on terrorism and international affairs today has to go with Donald Trump announcing that he's decertifying the nuke deal with Iran. Does that mean he's ripping it up? Well, here's the thing. The deal was, uh, uh, is called the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, so decertification, I've just actually uh, today filed a, a full-page story for the Kingston Week Standard, which will be uh, published next week. So uh, this deal was hammered out by the previous administration, the Obama, admin, Obama administration. And it, and it basically stated that um, Iran would uh, no longer be able to uh, enrich uranium to weapons grade. So their enrichment of uranium would have to be 5% or lower, and that would be for civilian purposes. Also, they would have to take several thousand of their centrifuges, which are used to process um, uranium, um, and which is then used in a, a nuclear weapon, because you can make a nuclear weapon out of processed uranium or plutonium, and the Iranians were going with uranium. So they would have to take that off. Um, there, so there, And they would also have to... Um, submit to uh, inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency. In exchange, um, they, uh, the Americans and the uh, other members of uh, the other parties to the agreement, which were um, known as the P5 plus one, so they would be the permanent members of the UN Security Council plus Germany, and then also the European Union signed the agreement. So in exchange for uh, acceding to these uh, conditions, there would be billions of dollars of relief in uh, sanctions. So um, Funds that have been frozen by the international community uh, would be unfrozen, and also um, like the the oil embargo, which had been basically well, and, and literally billions of dollars, billions were released to Iran as part of this deal. Yes, and then also the thing that was really biting on Iran because yeah, now I'm going to give Hillary Clinton her due. 
Um, in, when she became Secretary of State in 2009, um, she set about working uh, to get um, an international sanctions regime in place. And so she used deaf diplomacy, um, and she used a lot of her personal contacts from her days as uh, First Lady to uh, get a, a resolution in place at the United Nations um, targeting Iran. So um, she not only had to prevent um, Russia and uh, China from vetoing this resolution, she had to get nine of the 15 members of the Security Council to vote in favor, because they're also, in addition to the the permanent members, there are rotating seats. And so, for example, back then, Uganda was on um, the Security Council. And so um, she actually knew the president of Uganda, and so did Bill Clinton. So uh, she used her personal contacts to to get Uganda on side. And then she set about... um, Putting this uh, oil embargo in place, so she she even got China and India to stop buying Iranian oil, and then the 27 member um, uh, European Union all uh, agreed not to buy um, Iranian oil. Now, Iran, as Mr. Trump said today, is the leading sponsor of state terrorism in the world. They they're just they they fund Hezbollah, which is a, a terrorist organization. Uh, Canada has uh, declared Hezbollah to be a terrorist entity, and it's a threat to Canadian security. And that that goes back to the terrorism issue as well. So they are a danger, um, and this is something you know we can't underestimate. Hillary Clinton, in her book Hard Choices, um, used a lot of the same language that Mr. Trump used today. Um, that. Mr. Trump today listed all the things that Iran has done to the United States, for example, the 1983 bombing of the Marine barracks in Lebanon. And interestingly, um, foreshadowing what Mr. Trump said about North Korea at the United Nations, you recall a couple of weeks ago, he said that the United States, if attacked by North Korea, would completely destroy North Korea. Well, in the 2008 primaries, Hillary Clinton, when she was running against Barack Obama for the Democratic nomination, declared that if Iran launched a nuclear attack against Israel, the United States would retaliate and the United States would destroy Iran. So uh, Hillary Clinton was no dove when she uh, negotiated this agreement. So the purpose of this agreement was not to stop terrorism, was not to stop the ballistic missile program, but was to forestall Iran's development of these weapons. It was not a perfect deal. Clinton has acknowledged that it wasn't a perfect deal. But it at least brought Iran to the table. Because before this, Iran didn't want to talk to the Americans at all, didn't want to engage with uh, the P5 plus one in good faith. So this deal, in my opinion, was better than nothing. And now what we're faced with is decertification means that uh, President Trump no longer believes this deal uh, is well, in the national interest of the United States, and Iran is not compliant with it, and so he's kicking it to Congress. Congress will yeah, have he's saying sixty days. They're they're not follow, Iran's not following through on their part, which I think has been proven several times over since the deal was actually negotiated. So what he said today was Iran was not living up to the spirit of the deal. Now, the United Nations uh, nuclear watchdog has actually said that they are compliant. Uh, Defense Secretary Mattis, General Mattis, has said that Iran is compliant with the letter of the agreement. Now, I, there was just a report that came out yesterday in the Jerusalem Post. The Jerusalem Post obtained um, intelligence reports from Germany. Now, Germany has states, not provinces, and their states, interestingly, have intelligence agencies. And um, at, at least one of these reports show that in 2016, the Iranians made 32 attempts to procure procure uh, nuclear weapons technology and ballistic missile technology. The, uh, these intelligence reports also accused Iran of disseminating nuclear, and, chemical, and missile technology in and, 2016. And, and, and so that's after the deal has already been brokered. And this is from Germany, uh, a country that is, they're very much on side with the deal. It's, to put it bluntly, they want this deal. They were, were they not part of the P5 that helped negotiate it? P5 plus one? Yes, they were the plus one. Um, and today, Germany, France, the United Kingdom, uh, Russia, and the European Union have all endorsed the deal. So this leaves Mr. Trump with a bit of a con- quandary. He, he's got some huge challenges in front of him. So now he has to, Congress has to come up with a way to either strengthen the deal to make it tougher 
or Mr. Trump will scrap it. Now, that means the United States will no longer participate in it. Now, the other countries um, that are a party to the agreement could continue to honor the agreement, but if the United States doesn't honor the agreement, the Iranians will just walk away from the agreement. So there's nothing well, to stop them at this point. If they're, out back- there, if they're out there buying weapons-grade uranium, Jeffrey, and if they're out yes. there trying to spread nuclear technology to other countries or rogue states or Hezbollah or ISIS... Uh, Hamas, then what? What's left to honor? So here, here's the here's the thing. So it looks like the deal is dead. So I, I'm not even going to argue the merits of the deal at this point. I think it was better than nothing, but now we're left with nothing. So the the trick now is, Mr. Trump is either going to have to convince the international community, those countries that today think it's still a a, a good enough deal, he's going to have to convince them like Hillary Clinton did between 2009 and 2013, to sign on to an international regime that punishes Iran, isolates Iran, and basically um, cripples Iran's economy so it can no longer either afford to develop these nuclear weapons or will come back to the bargaining table, force them back to the bargaining table, and to agree to more onerous conditions. Um, The other thing Mr. Trump could do... Uh, One thing that I can tell you, um, remember speaking to um, John Bolton, former U.S. ambassador to the United Nations about this, going back several years, long before the the deal, is that it has to be a negotiated deal or sanctions or something because people have said, well, just, you know, bomb their, their facilities. And John Bolton, who can be a bit of a hawk, we're sitting talking in Washington one day and he said, Brian... We don't have the bombs to be able to reach where Iran has buried their research facilities on this. They okay, yeah. So Hillary Clinton um, writes this about this in her 2014 book, uh, "Hard Choices," which is a memoir of her time as Secretary of State. In 2009, uh, Western intelligence agencies discovered a secret facility um, outside the ancient city of um, Ulm. Um, it was a, a facility built deep within the mountains. It was a nuclear facility, and it was clandestine, and they'd never declared this facility to the International Atomic um, Energy Agency. So uh, President Obama and Hillary Clinton met with uh, their counterparts, uh, uh, Russian President uh, Dmitry Medvedev and Sergei Lavrov at the Waldorf um, Astoria Hotel in New York City, and they shared this uh, evidence with them of this secret nuclear facility built deep within this mountain, and it shocked the Russians. And the reason the Russians put it there is for the reason that Mr. Bolton explained it to you. So it could not be destroyed by conventional weapons. And incidentally, this was uh, a defining event, and it, it shocked the Russians, and it brought them on site. And so President Obama and Hillary Clinton used this information of this clandestine facility to actually get the world on site. It shocked a lot of people that the Iranians were doing this and that they had this advanced secret facility and that it had only been discovered in 2009. So the military option's not really there. The Israelis, about five years ago, were uh, secretly uh, planning an attack, um, and then someone within the Mossad leaked this and said this would be a really bad idea because you're not going to be able to get them all. To be frank, Brian, if you were the only way you could really get their nuclear facilities would be to probably use a nuclear weapon against them, and that would defeat yeah. the whole purpose because then that would turn right. the world against the United States. It would turn the world against Israel, and you don't want to be using nuclear weapons. We don't want to normalize You don't want to the use take out nuclear weapons by no. using them. Jeffrey, it's uh, hard choices, I guess, is, is the right term going forward. That's what lots of people have to make. Uh, Unfortunately, we've got to wrap it there. Thanks so much for the time. Make sure that you, uh, when the the piece goes live online, tweet it out. We'll make sure we tweet out and post your your latest column to Facebook. But when this one on Iran comes out, make sure we know about it, and I'll, uh, I'll make sure to share it with the audience. Absolutely. Thank you very much. All right. Jeffrey Johnson joining us, international affairs columnist with the Kingston Week Standard. Always worth the read. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News coming up just after 8. Whiskey Week in Ottawa. Matt Jones will join us. And coming up next, I'll give you more details on the problems facing Justin Trudeau and his liberals. And time keeps dragging on. You got a fetish for my life. In a world gone mad. 
there must be resistance. You're listening to Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. At the core of this government is a promise to support the middle class and those working hard to join it, to help small businesses succeed in an increasingly disrupted, globalized world. Hold on. Who does he want to help there? Who? At the core of this government is a promise to support the middle class and... Oh, the middle class and those working hard to join it. Like... The models paid $89,000 for the budget book. You've heard this already. I know you've heard it. $212,000. $212,000. 212, $212,234 for the cover of the budget book that no one sees because no one gets the hardcover of the budget book anymore. No one. No one, no one, no one. I go into these lockups. I didn't go in last year. I went in the year before. I'm one of the few people that tries to get a hard copy. You know what they hand out the budget on now? They give you a thumb drive. You get a little little stick. You plug it into your computer. It has all the data. You can word search and all of it. The conservatives used to have really boring covers. Uh, Paul Wells from McLean's tweeted out today the cover of what he called the most important budget that he's ever covered. It was the 1995 budget put out by Paul Martin. The one with all the austerity and the cuts after we were called the Banana Republic by the Wall Street Journal. It was plain black and white. I mean, the conservatives were boring for just using color, but it was still plain. There'd be a little design there. Cost a few hundred bucks. Okay. $212,000. And they went back and forth with their discussion about... Oh, does the old man getting his blood pressure checked look to this or that? You know, uh, do we need an Asian, Native, Indian, Latino? What ethnicities would you like us to cover? Does it have the right energy? No one gets the hard cover anymore. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. It's a rarity. You have to go ask for them. When I started going to budgets, and I've been going to them since 2000, you were handed the budget document, a whole pile of background information in hard copy form. Now you have to go and ask for it. And those are the people that are on the Hill. Did the members of the general public get to see it? No. This news coming out the same day that Justin Trudeau's finance minister, Bill Morneau, it was revealed that he had forgotten to tell the... Mm. Ethics Commissioner that uh, was a villa in France, private corporation. Sorry, you didn't hear that? Was I mumbling? Yeah, Bill Morneau owns a, uh, a villa in the south of France, in Provence, of course. Uh, where else? And he owns it through a private corporation controlled by him and his wife. Why does he hold it through a private corporation? Well, it's to save on taxes, including the inheritance tax so that if he wants to pass it on to his children, it's easier. This is the same guy that is in the middle of bringing in changes to the small business tax rules that will make it so that someone that is selling their family farm to their own children will have to pay the government 45%. You sell your farm for a million bucks $450,000 is going to the federal government. But if you sell it to a mega corporation, an offshore group of Chinese investors that are buying up farmland across Canada faster than you can blink an eye, well, actually, you're you're not going to pay anything. You're going to be, it's within the million dollars. That's your um, lifetime tax, what is it, your capital gains exemption, your lifetime capital gains exemption. But if you sell to your kid, you're sending $450,000 to the federal government. But he has his villa in France in a private corporation. It's one of seven private corporations that he is an owner of, in addition to the family trust that he has with his wife, Nancy McCain, of the McCain food family. These guys, and Paul Wells does this brilliantly in McLean's, pointing out that 
what many of you have been saying for so long is that these guys are trust fund fat cats who are so out of touch with regular Canadians that I, I don't know that they'd recognize regular Canadians other than someone that they smile at, take a selfie with, in Justin's case. But they are completely out of touch, which is why this latest Angus Reid poll is good news, because it was taken before this latest batch of bad news came out for the Liberals, and it shows the Liberals and Conservatives in a dead heat nationally. The only two areas of the country that the Liberals are leading in, Atlantic Canada and Quebec. They're tied in Ontario, and out west, the Liberals would be decimated if an election were held today. Good news, my friends. Good news. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. It's Friday. It's fun day. So when we come back, we'll introduce you to Matt Jones, brand ambassador for Jim Beam, who's in town to run some master classes on bourbon for Whiskey Ottawa. Insurgent. Believe it. The resistance is here. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly. News Talk 580 CFRA. Coming up tomorrow at the Canadian War Museum is the Ottawa Whiskey Festival. It's Whiskey Ottawa. Now, you know, if you listen to the show, that I happen to be a fan of the water of life. That's what whiskey means, by the way. It comes from the Gaelic Iskibaha, water of life. Tomorrow at the Canadian War Museum, they've got the Whiskey Festival on, and they've got all kinds. They've got scotch. They've got Canadian. And you've heard me talk about Canadian whiskey often with Davin de Corgamo, whose book is out now, Canadian Whiskey, the Portable Expert. Well, I was able to meet up with someone else who is also incredibly knowledgeable when it comes to whiskey. And that is Matt Jones. He is a brand ambassador for Beam Suntory, one of the largest distillers in the world. They are the owners of Jim Beam, Canadian Club, and a whole pile of other brands that you know. We met up at the liquor store at Rideau in King Edward, where he was hosting a class for employees of the liquor store and just had a good chat about what's out there and what you'll see, what you'll get if you're able to go out tomorrow. And if you can't, it's still worth the listen. We know bourbon has a lot of different flavors and it's a lot cheaper, but is it as complex as scotch? Can you, you know, pull out as many notes as the, the my scotch snob friends like to say? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, folks have seen past the typical stereotypes of bourbon over the last uh, 30 years and seeing a much more sophisticated sipping experience in their glasses. And that's because we're, again, dropping down the, uh, the stereotypes, getting it more approachable. But bourbon is a little bit more intense than its scotch or Irish and Canadian cousins. And that's an intensity we can only get from the mingling of the uh, brand new oak containers charred on the inside that we can only use one time. So it's uh, we're getting a lot of flavor from the barrel. In fact, 65 to 75% of uh, a bourbon's flavor, and arguably whiskey in general, is coming from that wood. And for bourbon, 100% of the color is also coming from the wood. So we're getting a lot of complexity from the grains as well as the, uh, the wonderful wood spice. But bourbon, because it is a little bit more intense uh, than other styles of whiskey, it's definitely encouraged when you're uh, evaluating a whiskey for the first time, add a few drops of water into it. It's how much? Up drops at a time. I mean, it's much easier to add water to whiskey than take it away, right? You can really hit that precipice where you get too much water, then you just add more whiskey <laughs> at the end of the day. But uh, drops to taste, uh, the most ideal ABV to really evaluate a whiskey is 35%, and you can't be whiskey unless you're 40% alcohol. That's so that alcohol by volume. Alcohol by volume, yeah. Um, Richard Patterson, the nose from Adele Winnie and White Mackay, uh, the nose for a reason. He's been a master blender for almost 52 years. He talks about how he evaluates all whiskeys at that ABV. But again, you can't be called whiskey unless you're 40%. So that tells you all whiskey benefits from the water. Once you know what it tastes like, you don't have to add water to it. Uh, Ice, on the other hand, is purely for refreshment. It doesn't really enhance the flavor. It actually numbs down the flavor but makes it more refreshing. So ice in the summertime is ideal, not so much in the wintertime. Yeah, well, it's uh, people always ask me how I like my whiskey. Generally, it's just neat. 
maybe I'll throw some water in it, but summertime, you're right. Okay, it's a bit hot out. You need the ice. Get that Kentucky sweet tea. That's what we like to call it on the, on the rocks. And it kind of passes for iced tea when no one's looking as well, so you can get away with that. But. All right, so what do we have here that, uh, you know, you're representing Jim Beam. It is the uh, biggest selling bourbon in the world, isn't it? Number one, yep. Number one best-selling bourbon uh, since uh, Prohibition. Uh, James Beauregard Beam, who got his name on the bottle, his nickname was Jim for short, um, he helped bring back the tradition after Prohibition, and very quickly, Jim Beam really started to take over around the world, and has been the number one best-selling bourbon ever since. And then we actually uh, innovated the premium category of small batch. Jim Beam's grandson, Booker No. He created Booker's, Baker's, which is down the shelf over here. Um, Basil Hayden up here, which is your wonderful light entry into the premium category it is a fantastic bourbon it's beautiful whiskey it's got a high rye content but it's only 40 percent alcohol i say only that is kind of low for a bourbon but it's cold chill filtered 40 percent i kind of refer to it as my breakfast bourbon <laughs> but it is a very full flavored delicious bourbon that doesn't have a huge bite on the on the back whereas knob creek the polar opposite um that is uh Hunter proof, 50% alcohol. It's the Jim Beam recipe, but all the batches come from the center cut in the warehouse where the temperature is the most moderate, but it's got uh, around 8 to 10 years in that wood, and it really extracts a lot of flavor. So these two are really polar opposites in the category. Knob Creek is one of those ones that's kind of a woolly taste to it, people will say, because it, it's... It's intense. It is. And it's that pre-prohibition, uh, almost like a bonded whiskey, that 100 proof. That was the standard <laughs> before prohibition. I mean, if you want to call yourself an American whiskey, you are at least 100 proof, 50% alcohol. Um, but it's, at that strength and even higher, like Baker's at 107, 53.5%, or even Booker's at 65% alcohol, that becomes a choose-your-own-adventure. <laughs> what kind of day have you had? Is it two fingers of whiskey? Or as I expand my fingers, is it two fingers of whiskey? Is it a drop of water? Or is it a bucket of water? So you get to decide. So experience. Just like we're seeing with Canadian whiskey where there's all kinds of um, small batch and variants and trying out different things, the same thing's happening with bourbon and right next to your Knob Creek Kentucky straight bourbon you've got a Knob Creek rye whiskey. Americans are getting into rye whiskey but it's you can't call it a rye like what we would expect in a rye and coke. This is true, but uh, just going to take it back a little bit further. American straight rye was the first commodity for trading in America long before the gold standard. It predates bourbon and it predates our Canadian whiskey tradition as an industry by about 75 to 80 years. So American rye was a big deal before uh, prohibition. Um, during Prohibition, those 14 long years where our American friends got a thirst for our delicious and lighter style of Canadian whiskey because they could no longer get their domestically produced whiskey legally. Legally. <laughs> and that quality. So the tradition kind of fell off the radar outside of America, but we've always made uh, fantastic rye in the States. We're now getting more of a demand in Canada for it on the heels of the cocktail renaissance over the last uh, 20 years. So many cocktails from before Prohibition, they called for an American straight rye as their base. The first time the old-fashioned appeared in print, says the whiskey cocktail in 1862. The first time the Manhattan appeared in print in 1884, it was with an American straight rye. So these whiskeys were there um, before Prohibition. So that tradition is coming back. The, the Knob Creek, or sorry, I should say the demand. The tradition's always been there. The demand is changing with our Knob Creek rye, our premium 100-proof small batch. And we also have our Jim Beam rye, the first time that's been launched in Canada. And it's actually marketed as a pre-Prohibition style because it mixes so well in these uh, wonderful classic cocktails. I've never had that. I'm kind of going to have to fix that. I've never had that one. Tell me, you are a mixologist, aren't you? It's only 31 It's only that's 30 that makes it. <laughs> so let's actually address for, the, uh, for the price there. For premium, that's good. Yep, absolutely. And bourbon, uh, on average, in most American whiskeys, are a quarter the cost of a, of a single malt. A lot to do with the fact that it takes us, uh, we produce it four times faster. One year in Kentucky is equal to four in Scotland. And if you do the math or send the barrels back and forth like we've done, um, you can see that uh, a malt whiskey in Kentucky, you got to pull that out of the warehouse within a year. It's so aggressively aging, it changes the flavor profile so much. Because of the heat because compared the heat to Scotland? Density. Yep, and the humidity. Uh, we get extreme fluctuations in temperature in Kentucky. It's very humid in the summertime. You do get freezing temperatures in the wintertime where Scotland is low and slow, right? You're not going to have a lot of extreme fluctuations in temperature. So a beach day at Scotland is 23 degrees, trust exactly. me. <laughs> exactly. You don't have to worry about bundling up or dressing down too much. It's always pretty constant. So for that reason, it uh, bourbon comes to market faster, but it's also a more intense product for that reason. On top of the fact we don't have to ship it across an ocean <laughs> to get it. So uh, there's your quarter of the 
cost savings. So looking at a, a Basil Hayden for uh, 53.95 as it is right now, uh, compared to a single malt, for me, around the same uh, um, uh, quality and sipping experience at the $100 range for a, uh, a single malt. When you're looking at uh, Knob Creek, at uh, we're looking at... Or on LTO right now, so forty-one ninety-five is an amazing price for Knob Creek, and compare that to something that's closer to a cast strength single malt that you're paying, you know, one hundred fifty, one hundred sixty dollars for. And yeah, I'm not paying. Right, exactly. So <laughs> why I'm drinking bourbon? <laughs> bourbon is nothing wrong with uh, calling it more of your everyday sipping whiskey uh, because of that approachability. But we do have a lot of super premiums and ultra premiums like our Booker's, which, as I point to the shelf, is bare because uh, Booker's is so hard to get right now, especially in Canada. It only comes through rolling allocations. We might have one more ship in the LCBO for the year and it sells out like that but that is about an $85 whiskey and that's about the the top tier that you're going to pay for that sort of premium then you get into the overage stuff as we like to call it anything over 12 15 years there's very few bourbons I like over 12 even fewer over 15 because you get out of balance between grain and wood but they're heavily marketed with age statements and we're trained to go with age and older is better you know that's why I put all the gray stuff in my beard this morning right <laughs> the truth is uh, barrels mature at different rates so if we tie ourselves to an age statement we're always going to miss out on some delicious whiskey but the other side of the coin is uh, in the bourbon industry the sweet spot is six to eight years I mean, again, there's very few I like over 12 years. So you get into these heavily marketed, higher-age bourbons, and it's more about the status and the rarity than it is the flavor profile. Yeah, which I, I, I'm all about the flavor. Yep. You know, I might like trying these other things now and again, but to me it's about the flavor, how good it tastes in your glass once it comes out of the bottle. Let's talk about mixing in the glass. So if if I'm, I'm not a mixologist, I've got a few standard... Uh, whiskey cocktails that I go to, like um, uh, a carte blanche, a boulevardier, things like that. Um, like the, the old man fashioned uh, now and again. Yeah. yeah. Forward, so. yeah. What, what would I be looking for? I mean, you can give me a specific one or a style that is better for mixing in a cocktail because Knob Creek's going to be really harsh in a cocktail. What, what would you recommend? Well, it's all about balance. I mean, Knob Creek by itself is, is, is a very balanced whiskey, but if you're not expecting it, that 50% can take over. If you're mixing into a cocktail, the same thing can happen. You're absolutely right. But let's start down over our, our, our um, first tier here with our Jim Beam White Label. That's definitely one that you want to keep for the mixing. If you're going to mix with sodas, if you're going to mix with my personal favorite, ginger beer and bourbon, or like our American friends like to mix a lot with cola, mm-hmm. or whatever you'd like to mix it with, that's a great everyday mixing whiskey, great price point. I mean, a 750 Jim Beam right now is on for 2795 then we move up to our Jim Beam Black Label, which is actually the highest rated bourbon of 2016. We got a little accolade on the bottle now to call out that it's actually the foremost uh, spirits competition in the world. And we were the top trophy winner of 2016. Um, and that bottle is 31.95. So I like to introduce folks to more spirit-forward cocktails like Old Fashions and Manhattans with that black label. And then we move up to Knob Creek, and now we're getting more into the connoisseur side of uh, sipping whiskey and mixing whiskey. So a more premium whiskey is always going to make a more premium cocktail. Not to say I don't make an Old Fashioned with Jim Beam, but if I want to get a little bit more out of it, I'm going to go a little bit But do you adjust how you make it if you're using... Uh, one that's a bit more full in the flavor. It's all about that balance. So water is an essential ingredient, usually added to a cocktail in the form of ice. So you got to stir to get that balance. Your other modifiers being uh, uh, sweeteners, juices, sugar. You have to get that balance of the whiskey and then accent the flavors in the whiskey with bitters, with citrus oils. So there is a formula, definitely, but I encourage people to experiment because every whiskey is different. I wouldn't actually make the same old-fashioned the same way with every whiskey on the shelf here. I would taste them first. I would maybe select different sweeteners, maybe a raw sugar syrup or a demerara sugar for one, maybe a maple for another, uh, even an agave nectar. Then we've got our flavors over here, like the Jim Beam apple. Let's just get this out of the way. That is not a whiskey. <laughs> that is a liqueur. It's a flavored uh, whiskey, 35% alcohol, but amazing in a cocktail. If you take that and balance it with, uh, uh, say, some fresh lemon juice or cider and cinnamon for the season, I mean, apple cider, you're going to have... Uh, a Pumpkin spice Jim Beam. Absolutely. Well, we haven't got there yet, but we do have a vanilla Jim Beam on the way uh, for Canada. We've got the honey, the apple, and the black cherry. Um, but in the U.S., we got about, I don't know, 25, 29 different flavors. <laughs> and I could stand and talk to you about them all day, Matt. Thanks so much for the time. Ah, you're very welcome, Brian. Cheers. All right. hope you learned something from that. I, I know I did. Maybe you wet your whistle a bit. Maybe you're thinking, hmm, now I need one of those cocktails. Uh, the Whiskey Ottawa Festival, it's on tomorrow at the... Um, 
the Canadian War Museum. You can still buy tickets online. The website's pretty easy. It's whiskeyottawa.ca. I'm Brian Lilly. This is Beyond the News. We'll wrap up the show because, hey, coming up shortly, it's the Red Blacks game. Lever Sage is standing outside the door complaining that I'm still in here. So he wants in the studio. I guess we'll clear out, let him do the pregame show from the studios of the Mighty 580. He gets some room tonight, not like that tiny studio TSN has. He's hated in official Ottawa, which is okay in our books. Beyond the News with Brian Lilly on News Talk 580 CFRA. All right, a couple minutes left in the show, and as I said, Leifer Sage standing outside the door complaining that I'm not out of here yet because he wants to get in to start the Red Blacks pregame show. Lee, i got to ask you before you start. It's called the Ogilvy Subaru Countdown to Kickoff. 90 minutes before each and every Red Blacks game, Brian. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't get your sponsor exactly okay. correct. And we're going to be on CFRA next week as well, so and make sure that you have a good lead into it. He's... Uh... He's Ready one of the go. most precious people over at TSN. <laughs> precious is the right word for Lever Sage. I used to call him my sports guru, but no, he's just precious. Uh, explain the CFL playoffs to me right now, at least as far as how Ottawa goes. we got two minutes. Huh. What the heck is are, are the chances of Ottawa getting in the playoffs? Well, I think the chances are high, Brian, of them getting a playoff berth. But right now it is a little bit codependent on the game that's happening as we speak. The Calgary Stampeders late in the first half lead the Hamilton Tiger Cats 14 to 12. If Hamilton wins, it becomes much more interesting. Ottawa's five points up on Hamilton. You think, well, that's a huge gap. Well, if Hamilton cuts it to three, they still would have two games in hand on the Ottawa Redblacks who have two bye weeks coming up next week and then the last week of the season. <laughs> it's the most ridiculous I schedule know. I've ever seen. I know. And they play Hamilton in their last game after on this one tonight. On the 29th. On the 27th. Okay. Right. So the chances are still pretty good that Ottawa hosts a playoff game. They could possibly host the Eastern Finals still. But if Hamilton sweeps their next four, well, if, if they, they win tonight and yeah. then take the next three... Again, including yeah. against Ottawa, right. and they're in and we're out? Depending on what the Argos do, yes. <laughs> if you want a very clear, really it's not It's about clear as all. clear as mud. Uh, uh, Ottawa's only got two games left, and this is a pretty important one tonight against Saskatchewan, regardless of the Hamilton-Calgary score. And Calgary, as you said, 14-12 right now. In the Western Conference, it looks a bit more stable. Mm-hmm. The Stamps are obviously going to be in. They're the only team that's clinched a playoff spot. And it looks like the Blue Bombers are going to take the second playoff spot out there. Which means, Brian, rub your hands together, that Calgary first, Winnipeg second. There's going to be a fight for not third place, but fourth in the West. Because is it easier to come to the East and take on Ottawa and then Toronto? Or is it easier to the, go to Winnipeg? We're going to do the crossover again this year, aren't we? And then to Calgary. <laughs> the Edmonton, I'm telling you right now, the Edmonton Eskimos and Saskatchewan Rough Riders are going to compete to see who's worse over the last three weeks so that they can come over. All right, good. To the so East. we're going to beat the Green Riders tonight. See, there you go. There now, the fact that you said we, you used to say that about Hamilton. Hey. The fact you say it about Ottawa now, we've, we've got you on the right track. All right. Leave Versage. He's coming up. Don't turn off your radios. It's not a mistake. Uh, <laughs> it's not a mistake, but he's going to be here. I'm Brian Lilly. This Lots. is Beyond the News. Back in moments. Oh, I'm not back in moments. Back on Monday.